Shalom uvokertov. Hello and good morning. We're very happy to be with you this morning. We thought that perhaps you'd like to hear a little Hebrew. The language of the Holy Scriptures. They say that if Moses went to Israel tomorrow, he could read the morning paper. I don't know if that's 100% correct. But certainly he could understand a lot. But also you know some words in Hebrew. Words like hallelujah and amen. But you also know some words in modern Hebrew. What you didn't know? Words like radio and television. Taxi and tractor. Taxi and tractor. Ketchup and mayonnaise. Ketchup and mayonnaise. You see, now you can go home and say, I can speak Hebrew. <laughs> well, it is great to be back at CFC. What a good time of singing we had this morning. You guys are blessed with some wonderful musicians, but I also appreciated the singing from the congregation. Um, that last song that we sang, Bless the Lord on My Soul, I don't know that you would have seen, but I gave a knowing glance to Lori when they started playing that song. Um, toward the end of this morning, we're going to show you a video clip from Brooklyn, and uh, Scott and his wife, Corey, Scott is the one that you'll, you'll see most in the video, but his wife, Corey, is also in the photo. They have three little kids, and when they were first coming on our staff, they were living in Vermont, and I went to their home church for their commissioning service, and I stayed in their home. And little Micah was only three years old at the time. And you know, sometimes kids have a hard time going to bed at night. Sometimes it's because they're so active and so wound up, they just can't sleep. Uh, but sometimes, you know, it gets pretty dark at night, pretty dark in the room. So how do you calm a child's fears? So the Schwartzes are musical people, and so they taught Micah to sing. So. Here it was, the sun was down, and uh, Micah was up in bed, and I'm sitting in the living room, and down the hall I hear the sweet strains on key and on pitch of little Micah singing, Bless the Lord, O my soul, O my soul. I can't hear that song without thinking of Micah. What a good way to chase the devil out of the room, right? Yes, and on that day, well, when my strength is failing. Well, speaking of kids, um, what, what do you think kids' least favorite phrases are? Well, I, I can tell you that I wasn't a kid when I married Lori. It was, uh, it was May of 76 that Lori walked through those doors and down this aisle to uh, dressed in white, waiting Wes, nervously. Um, so, I mean, I was already an adult by the time I knew Bill Curry. Bill Curry was a pastor here, some of you will remember very well. Uh, others of you are newer, but uh, Bill was the pastor here before he became the director of what was then American Messianic Fellowship, the ministry that I joined in November of 75. So before Lori and I were even married, Bill Curry was my boss before he became my father-in-law. That's an interesting combination, isn't it? Yeah. And when I became the associate director after some years, 
Uh, Bill was always on the road. He was always traveling. And uh, it was before the days of the internet and email and cell phones. So communications weren't nearly as, as easy. And uh, one of my least favorite phrases from my father-in-law boss was, Wes, I, I wish you had told me. <laughs> well, I wish I had too. <laughs> yeah. So that was one of my least favorite phrases. But uh, how about this one? What have you done? What have you done? Now, there are lots of ways that that question can be asked, right? Like, so, for example, if you're a school teacher and a child comes up to you and says, well, I, I didn't get all my, my homework finished, you can say, well, what, what have you done? Right? That's just kind of an inquiry for more information. Or uh, if you've got a contractor who's been working on building you a new home, for example, and he calls you on the phone and says, well, we made some progress today. You say, well, what have you done? That's not such an intimidating question. Sometimes you could ask it in a teasing way, like you walk into a room and you see some children who have been kind of playing a little bit, and you say, well, what, what have you done? Um, and sometimes you walk into a room and you see, like, there's baby powder everywhere or something worse on the walls, and you say, what have you done? Yes, there's all kinds of ways of asking, what have you done? I'd never done this before, but I actually did a search in Scripture, and that, that phrase appears numerous times in the Old Testament, only once in the New Testament that I could find. Uh, the very first question, of course, is asked by whom in the Bible? Anybody know? First question. Yeah, we would think God, right? Because it is in Genesis, and it is in the Garden, but the first question is actually asked by Satan. Did God really say? Did God really say? Have you heard that voice before? Really? Did God really say? Did God really mean that? There's got to be an asterisk there somewhere, right? Some escape clause, some, some way to get around to do what I want to do. Well, Adam and Eve found a way to get around. And then God does ask the second question, where are you? And then, who told you that you were naked? And the fourth question in the Bible is, what have you done? What have you done? The implication of the sin of Adam and Eve is something that haunts us even to this day. We live in a fallen world. The paradise that God created, the perfect world which he created for mankind to inhabit, became the mess in which we live because of what they had done. What have you done? The second time that question is asked, God also asks it. And this time he asks it of Cain when the first son kills his first brother. What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And God asks the question, of Israel and Judges too, you have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you have done? God is speaking to the Jewish nation. But there are lots of other references to what have you done, and a number of them are related to deceit. Pharaoh lies to, I mean, Abraham lies to Pharaoh about Sarah being his wife. And Pharaoh said to Abraham, he calls him, he summons Abram, get over here. What is this that you have done to me? 
Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Half-sister, tell him you're my sister. That was Genesis 12. Genesis 20, now we don't have Pharaoh, we have Abimelech, another king, the same scenario. Abimelech called Abram and said to him, what have you done to us? Same lie, different king. Like father, like son, Abimelech says to Isaac in Genesis 26, what is this that you have done to us? Same lie. Jacob to Laban. I love this little duo. Here you've got Jacob to Laban. In the morning, behold, it was Leah. You remember the little switching of brides? You remember that story? <laughs> Oi, waking up and finding that you were married to a sister of who you thought you were marrying. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this that you have done to me? <laughs> then a few chapters later, chapter 31, Laban says to Jacob, what have you done? You've tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword. Joseph to his brothers, what deed is this that you have done? Asked in dismay, Israel to Moses, what have you done in bringing us out of Egypt? Balak to Balaam, hired to curse Israel. Balaam blesses Israel three times. What have you done to me? Joshua to Achan, my son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. I've got to know why Israel is being defeated in battle and you're the one who's done something. Let's turn to 1 Samuel chapter 13 for our passage this morning. This is another what have you done story. 1 Samuel chapter 13. Now you remember, Saul is the first king of Israel. This is a handsome dude. This is a tall dude. This is someone that Israel wanted to lead them into battle. Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 3,000 men sounds like a lot, doesn't it? I mean, just think about a 3,000 motorcycle convoy for a POW parade. 3,000 motorcycles going by would take a little bit of time, wouldn't it? Clog up a little bit of traffic. 3,000 seems like a lot. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan and Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. And Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. This sounds like a pretty good deal, right? Got an army of only a thousand and a garrison goes down and but now the enemy, it's like putting your hand in a hornet's nest and sticking, you know, shaking it up. Now all of a sudden the enemy is aroused and the enemy is angry and they're coming after you. That's the picture here. Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land saying, let the Hebrews hear. Isn't it interesting? We're in 1 Samuel and the Jewish people are still called the Hebrews. Abraham the Hebrew when we get to the captivity, when the Jewish people are enslaved in Egypt, they're called the Hebrew people. When they enter into the land under Joshua, they're the Hebrews. And here, under King Saul, they're still the Hebrews. We don't hear of the Jewish people until after the kingdom divides between north and south. The ten tribes become the kingdom of Israel. The southern two tribes become the kingdom of Judah. 
And it's those folks, the people from Judah, when taken into captivity in Babylon, they're referred to as the, the Judeans, the, the Judahites, the Jews. That's where the term Jew comes from. So in our Bibles, we don't hear about the Jewish people by that name until we get to Mordecai the Jew in the story of Esther. Still the Hebrews here. Saul's calling his troops, blowing the shofar, saying, come on, boys, we got some battles to fight here. And all Israel heard it, heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines and the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal and the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots. Huh. Well, all of a sudden, 3,000 doesn't sound so much, does it? 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. Well, okay, a band of 1,000 can take a garrison, but who's going to defeat this army? Saul's mobilizing every able-bodied man in the 12 tribes to come and fight against a very angry and very well-equipped army. They came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. When the, sons, the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, hello, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns, and some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. You get the picture? A massive army is coming against us. And they've got the tanks, right? In modern-day terminology, these are the guys with the mechanized army. These are the guys who outnumber us significantly. And they're angry, and their goal is to wipe us out. And our troops are hiding. If there's a hole to be found, there's a Hebrew in it. And they're not of holes, so our guys are actually crossing over the Jordan in time of battle. This is called desertion, folks. When... The troops are called to battle, and you say, I'm going to skedaddle. That's not a good thing. Saul waited seven days. What would you do, honestly, before we go any further? What would you do if you were Saul? What would you do? You're not only the king, you're the commander of the forces. And hey, you know how to count. And you've got spies out there who are counting the enemy. You're getting intelligence reports. And you see that the metal of your soldiers is not even going to be tested for some. They're, they're taking off. And what are the troops feeling? What's their mindset? They're fearful. Have you ever seen someone so scared that they actually trembled in their boots? Maybe these guys didn't have boots. They had sandals, and you could see the trembling even easier. This is a real foe. This is a real problem. These are real armies who are really angry and who really intend to wipe you out. And Saul waits for seven days for his 
troops to come, the time appointed by Samuel. Samuel, the prophet, said, I'll meet you, buddy. You go wait. I'll be there in a week. Saul counts down the days, and he counts down his troops. And finally he says, i got to do something. I can't just sit around and wait any longer. Samuel did not call did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, uh-oh, Samuel came. Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? What? have you done? What have you done? That echo of God's voice in the garden, the echo of God's voice to murderous Cain, what have you done? And Saul said, well, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and you didn't show up within the days appointed. And the Philistines, they'd mustered at Michmash. I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. I didn't want to do it, Because the Torah says that kings are not supposed to be the ones offering the sacrifices. Didn't want to do it because Samuel the prophet told me to wait. Didn't want to do it, but what choice did I have? You ever felt like that? What choice do I have? You know, when we walk this Christian pilgrimage, Some days the sun shines and some days relationships are great and some days there's money in the bank and some days the doctor says it's a clean bill of health. There are days like that. But there are also days when the news isn't so good. And in our prayer time this morning, we were praying for folks who weren't dealing with such good news. And sometimes it's just an inconvenience It's just an annoyance. You know, I had a flat tire on the way to work. Or, (laughs) yeah. The rack in our dishwasher broke this week. Can you imagine? Oi, the rack in my dishwasher. The world's coming to an end. Right? Got fixed for free yesterday. It was under warranty. Guy at the appliance store, go to Blink Appliance, little commercial here. They fixed it for free. That's an annoyance. It's a frustration. But sometimes it's an overwhelming army that's seeking to destroy. Sometimes the enemy comes in like a flood. Sometimes the air gets squeezed out of our lungs. I use this as a word picture for spiritual warfare. To me, it feels like my head is in a black canvas bag and the string is drawn tightly. 
I can't see and I can't breathe and a vice is squeezing my chest. I feel helpless. I feel hopeless. And I've been trying my best and I've been counting my resources but I don't have enough. And the enemy is roaring. He says, you're going down. And I say, I gotta do something. Gotta do something. How many gotta do something stories do we have in the Bible? Scott and Corey were the ones who taught me the phrase, we don't want an Ishmael. You remember Ishmael? God promised Abram when he was 75 years old that he was going to have a son. And years go by from Genesis 12 to Genesis 15. And God says to Abram, don't be afraid. He appears to Abram in a vision after all kinds of experiences, including lying about his wife. And Pharaoh saying, what have you done? And God says, don't be afraid. I'm your shield and your exceeding great reward. And Abram says, oh, really? That's good. I'm a wealthy guy. It's true. But if I die tonight, Eliezer of Damascus gets all my stuff. And Eliezer, he's a good guy, but he's my servant. He's not my son. God says, go out and count the stars. So shall your descendants be. And Abraham believed God. And God credits his faith as righteousness. We love this story. But that's Genesis 15. And Abraham pillows his head that night and he still doesn't have a son. And the next night there's no son. And nine months later there's no son. And two years later there's no son. And Sarah says, you know what? God says we're going to have kids. <laughs> but you're old and I'm old and we ain't having kids. We got to figure this thing out. And so here's Hagar, my handmaiden. Take her. And she conceives and Ishmael is born and the problems between Ishmael's descendants and Israel's descendants are epic and generational through the millennia. How do we get Ishmael? Because we've got to do something. Because even though God promised, and we know God's faithful, but it's not happening, and the clock is ticking, and our bodies are getting older, and seven days have come, and the Prophet hasn't showed up. He said he was coming, but he's not here. And the troops are scattering, and I gotta do something. I gotta do something. If we don't identify with Saul here, then we're not really putting ourselves in his shoes. It's not difficult at all for me to say, Yeah, Saul, you gotta do something, man. 
The enemy's coming over the hill, and our soldiers are fleeing that away, and God's not showing up. It's time to fight. Got to rally the troops. Saul rallies the troops. He puts the meat on the altar, and Samuel shows up and says, what have you done? What have you done? What have you done? Do you see the spiritual twist that Saul puts on this? I needed to seek the favor of the Lord. Man, when we are deceived by the evil one, we can even justify it with God talk. We can even put a spiritual spin on our faithlessness and disobedience. Remember Adam in the garden? Who told you that you were naked? Did you eat of the fruit that I told you not to? Well, well, well yeah, I did, but, but the woman you gave me, you gave me the woman, she gave me the fruit. What was I supposed to do? We can excuse any willful disobedience, any lack of faith. We can look at the circumstances and say, don't you understand? The disciples are in a boat on the Sea of Galilee in a storm. And these are seasoned fishermen. These aren't tourists who are out for a little boat excursion. And they're scared to death. And where's Jesus? Oh, he's in the boat. (laughs) But he's down in the hold sleeping. And Peter shakes him and wakes him and says, don't you care that we're perishing? Jesus gets up and says, shekin, shalom, peace, be still. And the sea is calm. Don't you care? Isn't that, isn't that at the heart of how Satan levers, leverages us to disobedience? Because if God exists, that's the first thing we have to believe. He who comes to God must believe that he exists. But if God does exist, and if his character is good, if he is light and in him there is no darkness at all, and if he is all-powerful, if he really is omnipotent, how do you take a good God who can do anything and line that up with my circumstances when I hurt so much? When I'm losing, not winning. Saul says, I I was seeking the Lord. I I was really having a little worship service here. What, What could be so wrong with that? I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. 
You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be the prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. You've done foolishly. Wherever you are today, in the midst of life's battles, maybe you're just coming out of one, maybe you're just going into one, maybe you are in a period of quiescence and life is good and you're enjoying a season of peace. Wherever you are on life's journey, know that the evil one is very intent on destroying what God loves. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But Jesus didn't say that Satan wasn't going to try. There is no way that you can explain to me how it is that God's chosen people, the Jewish people, the one of whom, ones of whom he says, I've loved you with an everlasting love, yea, with everlasting kindness have I drawn you. The people who were the recipients of the Torah at Mount Sinai, the people to whom God sent prophet after prophet, the people for God, for whom God has a yet future plan and purpose. God's not finished with the people of Israel yet. There are things yet to be fulfilled in your Bible, and if God is true and his word is true, then these things must be true. And yet today, the majority of the Jewish people don't know the Lord. They don't know the Lord. The ultra-Orthodox, the ones who today are fasting because on the Jewish calendar, Tisha B'Av, the ninth of Av, is the most solemn day representing the destruction, remembering the destruction of the first and second temples and other tragedies that befell the Jewish nation. Today, ultra-Orthodox Jewish people around the world are fasting. They're not eating they're reading the book of Lamentations in the synagogue. And they're crying out to God. And many Jewish people are saying, God, where are you? Where were you when the six million died? Because we've got to do something. They've developed a whole system of rabbinic Judaism, which has replaced God's plan and his revealed purpose for his people.